Welcome back to Ask the Compound. This week I'm joined by Corporal, Lieutenant, what was your rank, Bill? Captain. Captain. Yes, sir. Real sweet. Filling in for Duncan, who is driving a German sedan on the Autobahn right now, I think. In honor of Duncan, I was looking for my goofiest hat, and uh, I think this fits the bill. I like it. Uh, Thanks. Today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. I was playing around with Rocket Money today. It's a pretty cool. It's it's a pretty cool app. It's really easy to link up your your bank accounts and your credit cards through Plaid, and then you go through and you see all of your different subscriptions. Lucky me, I did not find one subscription that I doubled up on, so I'm doing okay there. But they also have this little tab that says, "Hey, let us negotiate a lower bill for you." Now everyone here knows that I'm good at negotiating with my cable company every year. I'm undefeated. But they said, "Let us take a look at your cable bill or your phone bill with AT and T." or your internet bill, and we will try to lower the rate for you. And it says I have an 85% hit rate, which is pretty cool. But but just seeing all of your different, it shows you recurring. It, this is a monthly basis. This is a quarterly. This is an annual. It's a really cool little budgeting tool just to help understand where your money is going. Because I think a lot of people, frankly, just don't know. Or don't yeah. Maybe they don't want to know, but I think it, it's very helpful. Willful um, ignorance. That's what yes. I would plead. So um, rocketmoney.com slash ATC to sign up. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash ATC. It's really, really easy. It's a cool little tool you can use right on your phone. Big fan. Um, yeah. Big All fan. Right. Bill Sweet stepping in today, so we have a lot of tax questions. Yeah. We've got other stuff. We get 75 Roth questions a week, so <laughs> people really like the Roth. So Keep them coming. It. Hey, it keeps me employed. Uh, I'm, I dig it. They let me out also, of my I, cage. Yeah, I want to say get thanks to, as always, the people who are here on YouTube for the live show. Amen. It, it feels like we have the same people here every week. Who You can always count on them being there, and they're here before, before I even sign in. I, I know they're there. <laughs> they're talking to each other. They're asking us questions. They're making us jokes. So I want to say I, I appreciate all of you in the live chat as usual. John, let's do question number one. Let's do it. All right, so, Samuel. Oh, I'll take yeah. this one. Okay. Samuel, good name, right, Bill? It's perfect uh, on for Twitter. the first board. Yeah. This is tweeting to me, any advice on how to find a good CPA, particularly for a small business, for, for personal or small business taxes, when hiring one versus doing it myself would be a good idea. We've talked about this one a little bit on per, the personal side of things. We've, we've got it. Uh, we've never done it from the small business angle. Before we get into the right. question, John, do a chart on for me. Uh, this is from Bloomberg. Monthly U.S. small business applications or business applications has just skyrocketed since the pandemic. And it, after falling, it continued to stay in a pretty good range, and it's way, way above the pre-pandemic trend. So I think this is one of my favorite unintended outcomes of the craziest of the pandemic is just an explosion in entrepreneurship. But if you do have your side hustle or side business or start going out on your own, there's a lot more to think about. So I guess technically I have a small business between my blog and books and podcasts, that it's sort true. of stuff. So when my tax stuff started getting more complex, I came to you for help. So how much more complicated is a small business than personal uh, uh, when you're when thinking through this tax stuff? Like how, how much more important is it to have a professional there to help you? Yeah, this is a great question, Ben, and a common one. And Ben, to me, it's very similar to a question we've got commonly on the advice side, which is when should I hire an advisor versus run my own portfolio? Uh, what I would argue is like financial advice, taxes is very niche. It ends up being a relationship business. And again, similar to financial advice, that, that the, the value comes in the advice about what you should do, how to plan, and that conversation, thinking intuitively and, and, and viscerally with a professional about how to plan for the, for the future, the tax preparation is the commodity, just like for us, a portfolio is a commodity. So I, I would start with a, you know, take a look at Tax Layer, Tax Act, IRS free file if your AGI is less than 70K, 
But the threshold for when you should start looking professional, in my opinion, Ben, is when you want advice. When it stops being a commodity, you just don't want to get the work done, but you want to talk through, should I do this? Should I do that? That, that to me, is where the bar is. And pr probably for taxes more than anything, we have a pretty uh, educated audience here, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of it in taxes is there's stuff in the tax code that you don't even know exists. That you, like, you can get this break here, or you can actually write this off, or there's probably a lot of stuff out there that most people don't even realize exists because it is so complicated, our tax code. Yeah, and it gets more complicated every year, unfortunately. But yes, how you treat a home office deduction, a lot of those decisions on corporate structure going into a small business, that is the type of thing I would strongly recommend uh, speaking to a CPA or experienced professional. So the next question uh, coming from from uh, from Sam Samuel was, uh, how do I find one? So John can, John, can you pull up the chart that I put together? I would say three big buckets. The number one place, and it's the same thing with financial advice, how do you find a professional, a CPA? I would look for a referral. Talk to a friend. If you happen to be starting a small business, something that you have someone else who is a, uh, a mentor, somebody that you look up to who runs a similar operation, I would talk to them. Hey, how did you get started? Who did you talk to? Who's your CPA? Those to me are totally legitimate questions, and it's a fantastic way to grow a business from my point of view, which is to get good referrals because you end up replicating your clients over time if you know how to ask that. So I'd start with asking for a referral from somebody that you trust or look up to in the business. The second thing I would think about is specialties or niches. There are CPAs that focus on real estate partnerships. There are CPAs that focus on getting depreciation right. One of my favorite interactions I have each year, Ben, is with a client who happens to be a dentist, and he, in, he interacts with a, a, a CPA business that all they do is dentists, like that's it. And so I really like that specifically for tax because I think, again, the advice is what you're going to pay for. And you are going to pay more, by the way. So depending on your business, commodity. yeah, mm -hmm. CPA for dentists, CPA for yep. lemonade sand, whatever it is, yep. find your niche. I, yep. I like that one. Seek that. And the final, the third bullet point was just business organization. Like if, if, you, if you strike out on one or two, go to local chamber of commerce, go to local rotary, because I think that one-on-one, -on -one, that face-to-face, -face, you can get an idea of people's reputation. I think, unfortunately, tax is not something that's translated well online outside of very niche stuff in tax Twitter, mostly you're going to want to find somebody local that you can sit down and talk to. Before, before I used you, I, I relied heavily on my father, who's a former CFO, in the same vein as you. And uh, his thing that keeps him busy during tax season in retirement is he goes and does people's taxes at Goodwill. They actually do it for free. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I think they use the IRS free filing software. That's for people yep. who have very you know, little complexity. Right. Uh, but there are services like that that you could look for as well. Yeah, and I give I give uh, Ed Carlson a, a lot of props because it's a great way for him to use his skills, right, and donate what he has most right now, which is time, right, to help people out. So I, I give him a lot of credit. You raised an excellent son, Ed. Great, great work. He made me do my first tax return when I was like 15 years old, <laughs> with my first job. Like he on the kitchen to table to with a pencil. Did you have to erase? You know, when you made a mistake. I mean, I probably had oh, three yeah. boxes yeah. I had to fill out because I, I, you know, I had I had a job and that's it. I bet they don't do that. But when should I start that for my son? Do you think age seven is that appropriate? <laughs> the next couple of months? What, what do we think? Yeah, put him to work. Get I've got my the, first one, 1987, my very first tax return. I'll, maybe I'll bring it to the next show. You still have it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I worked really hard on that, Ben. All right, let's do another one. <laughs> Great. So uh, question two. Uh, I work for a Magnificent Seven company. Ben, on titles, like wh why are we mag 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 Magnificent Seven? Where did this come from? Um, we, we just keep moving the goalposts for the biggest companies. <laughs> it's getting crazy. Uh, it's a new name every six months. Um, but Robert says, I've accumulated RSUs quarterly for the past four years, and each of those carries its own cost basis. It's about 30% of Robert's investable assets, almost $300,000, which is not to brag. Uh, I'm in my mid-30s. I have a pretty high risk tolerance. But what is a good rule of thumb for single stock exposure? What's a tax-efficient way to rebalance into index funds? 
I am considering selling them as there's more to vest, there isn't much capital gain, but what do I do with my existing stocks? Should I sell my highest cost basis first? Do I care if it's mixed between short or long-term gains? What are my options from Robert? And Robert's going to show up several times here on this show. So uh, That's right. Great. He had double questions. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I am, it always kind of boggles my mind how many 20 and 30-somethings we have running into the show who work for a tech company who have very high salaries and have some really good yeah. RSUs and are doing very well for themselves, yeah, obviously. Worked hard, worked hard for it. Yeah, yeah and, and probably have high stress, high work jobs, and probably are highly educated. Uh, good. So the first first one is like, he obviously knows I have way too much single stock exposure. I need to get this down. So kudos to you for admitting that and understanding that. Some people don't ever get there. We have plenty of clients who come to us in similar situations. And it, for a lot of them, it could be way more than 30%. We've had oh, people yeah. with 90, 95% of their wealth yep. in like one stock. And they, and they know like, listen, I made a lot of money on this. Now I need to diversify. So, yeah, and, and one of my talking points for Robert here, it's not just the stock exposure, but you, you not only is 30% of your net worth tied to the company that you work for, so is your income. Yeah. Right. So if there. something happens to that yes. company, you're 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 in you're in pain in a lot of different kinds of pain. So how what, how does this work between because for some of these you have to pay the taxes up front to vest the stocks and then mm -hmm. he has to pay after how does how does this actually work? Yeah. So relative to other types of equity based compensation, Ben RSUs restricted stock units are extremely simple. Ben, the concept is each year you get paid based on a vesting number of shares, but instead of getting paid in cash, you're getting paid in company stock. That's it. And what they do is they play a little bit of game and ship in that they say, look, we're going to declare that you have a $50,000 RSU grant, but those shares aren't going to vest for five years. And so you see the stock price, you do the math, this is how much it's worth. But in reality, you can't do anything with that stock until it vests. And that's the most important date when we talk about RSUs. It's got to be such a psychological toll because you, you know, like I have, I'm worth this much based on the stock price. And then you see it fluctuating and it goes up and you feel better and it goes down, you feel worse. Yeah. Right. That roller coaster, living that with your income. I guess the concept is you want people pulling in the same direction, right? You want a profitable enterprise. And so if people are thinking as yeah, owners, that's the concept. But yeah, I would agree. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a game <laughs> because ultimately what, the minute that you get that stock, there's really no tax benefit at that moment. It's exactly as if they handed you exactly that same amount of, of, of net worth in cash and it gets taxed that same way too. So step one for me, Robert, would be the minute that your next tranche vest, just sell it immediately. You already have 30% of your net worth in the stock in a company that you work for too. There's no reason to take on additional single stock exposure. And if there's no tax benefit, like there is with ISOs, like there is with ENSOs, just, just liquidate the, the shares going forward. That's step one for me. So as they come in, it's like reverse dollar cost averaging. You're exactly. slowly selling them off as they vest. That's great because your cost basis is equal to your market value on the date of vest. So that's step one. In terms of percentage, Ben, not sure how you feel about this, but yeah, I get really queasy when we get up to 50% and Robert's more than halfway there of his total net worth. I prefer for my clients to keep the total single stock exposure to 10%. I get kind of uncomfortable when we get north of 20. So Robert, you're in the danger zone, in my opinion. And Ben, you've written a lot about financial history, General Motors, Enron, SVB, Lehman, uh, General Electric, we were talking about with a client today. These are companies that were the largest, most stable, most growing companies that you could possibly imagine in their day. And they declined net worth, some of them to zero, right? In and the so many people in Enron. these individual positions that work at a company probably get a little overconfident. Like, hey, I know this business, yep. I understand it. And and that that yep. is tough for people who are in the situation. Precisely. The business goes down, maybe your income falls, you lose your job, and your retirement is gone because the stock got wiped out. Yeah, you don't want to get into that situation. Amen. So our friend and colleague, Mr. Joel Fishman from Bend, Oregon, likes to use a regret minimization framework. I would sit down and do the exercise, Robert. What happens if that stock goes to zero? 
what moves looking backward would you wish you would have made, right? You want to be a company man. You want to help invest in your stock. You're going to continue to get RSUs. Do you need to have that much exposure? And I would just rip off the highest cost basis, the most capital gain, the lowest capital gains stock that's long-term and do that more or less as soon as you can. And working for one of these magnificent seven companies, it's Google or Amazon or Microsoft, whoever, the stock price is probably up quite a bit. So yep. you've probably already done pretty well in these. So the time to diversify after you've made some money, it's, it's probably pretty decent timing. Not going to yep. say these companies are going to fall off a cliff, but you've probably done okay in these. Get a millionaire in mid-30s, yeah. Uh, when, you, when you won the game, it's time to stop playing. And again, you're going to continue to receive RSU grants. So there's no reason to hold that percentage. Right. I'd come but up he with sounds like he's thinking about this thing the right way, which is Amen. that's a good first step. Very good. All right. All right, let's do a Roth one. Ooh. Maxed out my contributions to my Roth 401k IRA every year for almost a decade, with my 401k match being the only traditional I have. Always weird to me that like they mm. you have a Roth 401k, but then the traditional has to be the match. Yeah. You've explained it to me. I still don't get it. Bill Suite recommends Roth until the 32% tax bracket. So I do. Have, this person has been paying attention. Mm -hmm. But how does your time horizon affect the decision? I'm in my mid-30s now and 35% tax bracket. I don't plan on touching it until I run through my taxable account first when I eventually retire. Does the 30-plus years of tax-free compounding growth trump the high tax rate, even if I am in a lower tax bracket later? Again, we've got a, someone in their 30s here who is thinking way ahead. They're already mm -hmm. thinking about retirement withdrawal strategies. They're in the tax bracket thoughts. This is a good question. Does age or time horizon ever affect your rule of thumb on the tax rate? Yes, I, I think it does. And Robert, uh, good to be with you again. <laughs> the answer, of course, is it depends. But for me, Ben, 35% is right around the place where I would favor a traditional contribution over a Roth as a general rule of thumb. We do happen to have a lot of details about Robert, but we're not in a place where we can give him specific financial advice. But in my opinion, Ben, most folks in, in our practice that I observe, they, they kind of slow down and they stop working, usually in their 60s. And usually when RMDs, when Social Security kicks in, let's say 70, 73, sometime in that time frame, most taxpayers settle in around the 22, maybe 24% tax brackets. And 35% where Robert is now, relative to where he's probably going to be, that's a full 12% higher today than it is in the future, right? And so, Robert, if you plan to delay Social Security, you're going to have a few years at 0%, 10%, 12% to fill up those lower tax brackets. 22% bracket in today's dollars runs all the way up to $198,000 for a married couple. Peak combined, the, the, the primary thing I think that a lot of taxpayers don't accumulate for or think about when they're considering this is that tax brackets are also adjusted for inflation, Ben. And that's a key point, that if, if I can do up to $200,000 of Roth conversions today at 22%, if, if we have a 4% inflation rate over the next 30 years, that's, that number is going to be up to $1.1 million. Right, and so yes, we need to account for compounding. I guess I didn't realize that. So does that mean they've been tracking the actual inflation rate, so they've been going up pretty high in the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah, so it's tied to CPIU, just, just like a lot of other indices. Uh, there are there's some discussions to switch that to change CPU, like, like uh, Social Security did. But, but in my mind, right around 35%, that's when it stops making sense. And, and even a, a great study where I'm going to reference later uh, showed that even when you, when, you, when you dial up the tax rates like we think might happen in 2026, uh, people are probably going to revert to about, pay about 3% more. That's not what moves the needle. What moves the needle is these big shifts from 35 to 22. I think 35 is too high to recommend a Roth. And so I'd stick to traditional as a general rule today. Okay, that makes sense. The last point for Robert, state taxes might move the needle. Uh, particularly if you're in a high-tax state now, let's yeah, say he's a New York. Magnificent Seven Company, he might be in California. Yeah, or California, and you plan to move in Nevada, let's say, you plan to move to Washington State, no state income tax. Traditional makes all the more sense, right? Because you're not going to pay that state income tax in addition to higher federal tax. So get out of San Francisco, move to Seattle. Yeah, assuming that anything's left there that's not nailed down in San Francisco, I, I would agree.
I would okay. Agree. All right. Let's do the next one. So I just turned 27 and I make $260,000 at a job that started less than a year ago. That's a lot of money, Ben, at 27. It is. It was a grind to get there, but the job itself is very stressful. I dread going to work in the morning, but I deal with it for the money and I save an investment majority, so I don't have to do this forever. For context, I have about $400,000 in investments right now. Recently, an opportunity came up that's much more interesting and pays well, but not as much as my current job. It's around $150,000. At this is the intersection of what I do for work and my actual interests, so it could be a tap dance to work situation. But I can, can I stomach a $100,000 income drop in the vanishing years of compounding? Should I continue to grind it out and pack cash away or let myself go down the more interesting road from Gavin? Ben, have this you ever is, tap danced to work? Uh, only Warren Buffett does that, I thought. <laughs> I think uh, so. You're Buffett and Munger. Me, I have a lot of thoughts on this one. You have to let me cook here for a minute. Because oh, let's do it. This is, this is one of my favorite questions I've gotten because I think most career advice is useless. Because I think your career path and trajectory is governed so much by luck and timing and personality and politics and skills in your network, right? That it's basically impossible to say, like, my career went this way, so if you just follow my lead, you'll do the exact same thing. Because I look back at so many forks in the road for my career, if I would have done this, if I and, and how it changed, and the jobs that I did get, and the jobs that I didn't get. So, but this question totally hits on a trade-off that you, like, I can't, do you want to earn a lot of money, or do you want to work in the job that you love? Mm-hmm. That's a difficult decision. So the way I see it, especially in your 20s, and again, this, this person is very blessed to have that much, make that much money in their 20s. There's, like, oh, yeah. three types of jobs. So there's learning jobs, like, you're learning, some, some jobs are just more about learning than earning. Like learning what industries or jobs you want to work in, the people you do or don't want to work with, types of companies you want to work with. And some people just need experience and on-the-job training, right? I, then I think there's earning jobs. A lot of people, a lot of my friends going out of college, the sole reason they picked a specific company was because of the salary, right? They took the best offer they could get, the best signing bonus, whatever. Uh, you might have to put in more hours and more stress than a lot of these people did, but setting a baseline early in your career for like future negotiations with different companies, I think is, is, is something to think about, right? You sure. earn a lot of money at first and you set that baseline high. So in the future, when you're negotiating salary, you already have that high starting. And then right. I think the third one is the dream job, which is perfect industry, perfect company, people you want to work with. I think 99% of people in their twenties probably never get the dream job right away. That, that if you do, you're, you're lucky, right? Obviously yeah. the ideal scenario is I want a job that I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to earn a lot and I'm going to be my dream job, Right. My yeah. 20s were the learning route. I, I worked for a company that didn't pay much right out of school, hmm. mostly out of necessity because I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. And that was part of it. I was learning on the job. But like, I think that job springboarded my career because I learned so much about the investment business from my boss that I still use today, stuff about investment policy and asset allocation and making good decisions. So I think it was totally worth it for me. I had a friend who went into investment banking who worked 80, 90 hours a week. His first year, he had three days off all year. But he kind of loved it, and he used that to, to go into a different – so, I mean, that, that's a lot of that is about your personality. So mm-hmm. I can totally sympathize with the reluctance to give up a big salary because you're always going to be anchoring to that level. And, like, right. the psychological toll of losses sting twice as bad as gains feel good, if you get rid of that salary – like, I could say right now, you could, you could pay me five times as much – and I wouldn't leave because I love working with you and working with the pe- like all the yeah. stuff I get to do at Ritholtz and the creative projects. Like I, I Feeling love is mutual bed. Yeah, so I, I love that job, and you couldn't pay me enough to work somewhere else because just wouldn't have the freedom and work with the same people. But I think it's easier for me to say I wouldn't take this mythical higher number versus saying I have a higher number now I'm going to go lower to yeah. take that. So you've heard of this Harvard study before? I, I think it was performed in the '90s. They, they asked a bunch of students and faculty. Would you rather have a yearly income of 50 grand, but everyone else makes 25 on average? Or would you rather have 100 grand 
and everyone else earns 200 grand on average, keeping prices and cost of living constant. And it was interesting. It, the, the results were right down the middle. It was half people said I would rather make more relatively and less absolutely, and half people said I would rather make more absolutely and less relatively. And it's, mm-hmm. it's totally a psychological how you think about things kind of. So I, I think life is full of trade-offs. I'm a huge principles guy personally. Mm-hmm. I would have a hard time working in a soul-sucking job that's high stress. I, I just don't have that like type A personality of I'm going to do this job, it stinks, but I'm making a lot of money and I'm packing it away. So I, I think it's 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 hard to put a dollar figure on the tap dance to work situation. Here's the questions I would ask yourself because there there really is there's no right answer here, right? Yeah, no. I think you have to ask yourself depends. like like you, you said th- half half of that Harvard study would do this and the other half wouldn't. Yeah, so, so. I think it's personality, but I think do you really think your long term financial situation is going to be like markedly worse by taking this yeah. job? And you know, we're dealing um, with a 27 year old that saved four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, right? they're already That's, in a pretty darn good place. If you compound yeah. that over thirty years, you're already in a very good spot. Do you? Yeah. How much do you really hate your current role? Right. Um, I, I think how much better would other areas of life be if you didn't have this stress? And what other kind of perks yeah. might you get from this job, like remote work, ability to you know benefits, some of these other things you can't quantify in a salary number. And then I think you have to under, you have to think through, is this opportunity ever going to come knocking again? Like, yeah. could you put it off for two or three years, and if you wanted to pack away 70% of your income for a couple of years right. to really make yourself good? Or the inverse, could you go back to this hellish investment job or wherever? If you had to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I just, the question really boils down to, like, how much is your happiness on the job worth? Which, yeah. again, you cannot answer. But I think this is, I would have a very difficult time answering this if I was put in this scenario. Yeah, I'd like to say I'd, I would go with my dream job, tap dance work situation, but it'd, it'd be hard to let go of that salary. Yeah, the uh, story that this makes me think of. My favorite author Ben is Kurt Vonnegut, and there's a great story uh, with him and Joseph Heller, the author of Catch Twenty Two, and they're walking at a beach party uh, in the Hamptons, and they're at some hedge fund guy, and he's got all the cars on the beach, and he's got the models, and there's the shrimp and the cocktails, all this stuff in the '60s, and Heller looks at Vonnegut and says, uh, "I've got one one thing this guy doesn't have." And Vonnegut says, "What's that?" And Heller says, "Enough." Yeah, I love that. I'm big Slaughterhouse Five guy here. Oh, great, um, great, classic story. So, Gavin, I'd, th- I'd go, I'd go, man. That would be my, that'd be my th- answer. Here's one of the things: as I talk to a lot of friends and family members who just hate their bosses or hate the people they work with or hate their job, and mm-hmm. I, with people outside of the industry, I rarely talk about my job because I actually enjoy it. I like what I do. I like the people I work with. We have fun together. Um, my wife is always saying, like, stop talking about your job to other people and saying that you like it because they don't, obviously. So I, I don't know how you can put a price on yeah. having a job that you yeah. love going to just because of how much time you spend working in your yeah. life. True, true. So, and especially if you can find that dream job in your 20s, I do agree that it, it I don't know how often that, that comes around where you have that, yeah. that opportunity. Yep. Gavin, money's not all that's in life. Trade, trade some money for time. True. All right. Last question. All right. 65, recently retired. Uh, when my employer started offering a Roth 401k, I switched my contributions to the Roth. See, everyone's listening to Bill. Mm-hmm. But most of my career retirement savings went into traditional 401k before. As I look at what I will be getting in retirement, I'm realizing that I'll be in the 24% bracket forever. It's pretty close to your, your estimate earlier. Delayed Social Security RMDs from the TSP and a nice federal pension. They all add up. I'm keeping federal employee health benefit instead of Medicare, so I don't need to worry about higher Medicare bills because of IRMAA. What's that? Yep, IRMA. IRMA. It's a Medicare adjustment. Okay. For higher income folks, you pay more for Medicare in your 60s. Getting assets into the Roth will protect them from possible future tax increases. Some of my account will go to my heirs, so the Roth might be a better wrapper for that asset for them. Given all that, should I just move my money out of the traditional account into the Roth now? For example, do the minimum Roth 
conversion that keeps my income within 24% bracket each year. Until it was all in the Roth, what am I missing? So they're essentially wanting to transfer as many of those traditional assets to Roth now. So they'd be paying the taxes, mm-hmm. obviously. Right. For the, is it still called a backdoor Roth if you do it this way? No, that's a conversion. Uh, okay, just a Roth a conversion. conversion. Yeah. yeah, that's a front door uh, or a ceiling or roof. So this is like this is a little bit of the opposite of the the other one about the time horizon. Well, I guess it is because they're looking for their heirs. But is it is it is this overkill? Is this too much, or is this? Do you think this makes sense? No, I, th- I think David's got every, all the check boxes, right? So, like you said, Ben, he mentioned an Irma. He mentioned delaying Social Security. He's got a pension coming. He's got a TSP, a thrift savings plan, which we've talked about on this show. It's it's a it's a four hundred one k for government workers. Uh, my man David did everything right, and now he's thinking, gee, you know, I'm probably going to pass these assets on to my kids, to the next generation. What is the most efficient way to do it? And I think it, it comes down to, Ben, do you want to maximize your net worth now or do you want to maximize your after-tax spending or your, your kids' or grandchildren's after-tax spending? Ed McWarry, uh, Ben, at, at Santa Clara University, wrote the best paper on this in 2021. It's called When and For Whom Roth Conversions Are Most Beneficial. And the quote that I want to share with the listeners, a Roth conversion will always pay off if the time span is long enough. The problem is, <laughs> on a long enough timeline, according to Tyler Durden, we're all dead, right? So, but David's thinking beyond his life, and I think that's really cool. Uh, the thing I just, the curveball I think that the that Congress threw us the Value Secure Act in 2020 is, now the your time span for inherited IRAs, including Ross, is 10 years after your death. But to me, that's still long enough for somebody who's 65, probably has another 25, 30-year life expectancy, tack on another 10 years after that. We're talking about 40 years. John, can we pull up my final chart here of the day? Uh, this is from the Ed McQuarrie paper from Santa Clara. Uh, it just measures very quickly uh, Roth conversion or surplus. And for folks listening to my podcast, uh, I've adjusted the ages to 65. The break-even point for most taxpayers at a 22% bracket is somewhere between age 80 and 84, depending on the situation. Uh, can we take the chart off for a sec, John? So you, so you still have yeah. some time. Then. I think I think we have some time. And keep in mind, uh, again, that you've got 10 years after your mortality, right? So if we've got a life expectancy in the late 80s, if David's already hit 65, his life expectancy is probably in the 90s, we're really looking at a 40, a 35-year horizon here. So how so, much will those heirs appreciate? So let's say he does it just, I'm going to do it just for the money I'm leaving to my heirs. Mm-hmm. If he just does those Roth conversions for them, how much will they appreciate getting a Roth as opposed to traditional money? I mean, it solves all the tax problems, right? Because if you end up getting a Roth on the back end, tax-free, you're not writing a check to the IRS. You're not doing any tax withholdings. You don't have to mess around with your own IRMA, assuming you're somebody 65. I, I think it's the thing to do. If, if you're looking at a 35 or 40-year time horizon, David, I give you all the credit to doing it. The key point I wanted to emphasize, though, Ben, is I wouldn't go beyond, I said this before, I wouldn't go up to the 32% tax bracket. I would draw a line at 24, because after that, it stops making sense. I don't know what the dollar amount is we're looking at, but assuming that we have income from our TSP, from our Social Security, from our government pension, we just don't want to go too far, right? We don't want to be paying at 37%. So I think it's a multi-year process, but David's got the right idea, and I don't mind getting started here today. Kudos to the audience today. These are all great questions. Great I think questions. This, this also, but I think this also proves, all these questions prove, you can study all this stuff you want and know everything, and, and it's still hard to make decisions at some point. Right, yeah. because I've I've done this right, I've done this right, I've done this right. I know this, I understand what this means, but still, now what do I do? And I, yeah. I think that's that's always the challenge with financial decisions: is even if you do everything right, it's still difficult psychologically to realize like, what if I go left and what if I go right? Because yep. it, it's there, it's it's rarely black and white for these things. Yep, and it goes back to the first listener's question uh, from Robert, which I believe when or Samuel, when do I look for a CPA? When do you want to sit down and talk about advice? And I would not be afraid to ask a professional, what should I do? 
at the end of the conversation, going back to Joey Fishman, regret minimization, what am I going to regret more if looking back? Am I going to regret more not doing enough Roth or paying the tax? And that, that probably will give you the answer. Perfect. Okay. Rock and we roll. only have a million more tax questions in the doc, so they will be back again. Keep them coming. Of course. Uh, thank you for filling in for Duncan. I'm admirably. very excited for Duncan to come back. Uh, there's a, a part of my whole our heart that's missing right now. Yes, so we all miss him. Thank you Germany. to John for handling everything behind the scenes as God usual. God bless you, John. Big shouts. Remember, our email here, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Leave us a comment. Thanks again to everyone in the live chat. Leave us a comment on YouTube. Always ask some questions there. So, uh, what do you call it? Rate, review, subscribe, all that good <laughs> stuff. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.